As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast. Watching the Watchmen that watch us watching them as they watch us watching them watching us. Today we're talking about the Watchmen franchise, such as it is. I'm Mark Lintonmeyer, wearing a mask not out of fear or cruelty, but out of ennui. This is Erica Spires, and I am on a nerd high. Just finished reading the novel, finally, and also finished Star Wars last night, so. Oh my. And I'm Brian Hurt. And what I find totally unbelievable about Watchmen is that this TV show ever got made. Seriously. It's a miracle, and it's beautiful. And our guest. Hi, I'm David Pizarro, and talking to you guys is like licking a battery. <laughs> do you experience things in linear time, Dave, or do you already know how this is going to go? I wish it were still 1985. <laughs> that was my peak. Hey, did you see that uh, the trailer for Wonder Woman 84? I haven't yet. I read a little bit about it, but I was avoiding the trailer. Is it good? Yeah. I got quite excited by it. You know, it, it feels a little like nostalgic, like they were doing the 90s with Captain Marvel. I'm excited there's a, there's a place for the, the 80s for her. I'm excited to have a good DC movie. Oh, yes. <laughs> there's something so tragic watching Steve Trevor walk around with a fanny pack on. It's just... <laughs> there's a lot of... 80s service going on, which is all right by me. So we should introduce, so Dave, you are on the Very Bad Wizards podcast. You've been on Partial Examined Life before. I've not been on your podcast. I'm not sure why that hasn't happened yet, but I don't feel that offended. Oh. Uh, You know, time is not linear. In my mind, you've already been on the podcast, you know. Because they trash us on their podcast. It's 2023. Mark has been on the podcast. Well, our listeners know that Mark starts every podcast by airing his beefs <laughs> with our guests, how they've wronged them. So, what else he got? Yeah, so Watchmen, we, uh, <laughs> I had, but Dave is actually one of the first people when we were doing this podcast that I said he would be entertaining talking about pop culture topics because they already do that. In fact, this whole podcast is sort of a stealing your idea a little bit that they do some philosophy stuff, some psychology stuff, but they also do talk about particular Black Mirror episodes and things on that. And we don't do that on Partially Examined Life so much. So having this extra outlet to be able to do that, I knew that I wanted to get Dave involved. He said, put me on something comics involved. And we knew this was happening. And so thus a plan was born. Yeah, I'm seriously so excited. And you know, it could have been that the Watchmen TV show would have been terrible. And this would have, <laughs> would have been a very different, different episode, I suppose. Wouldn't, it, wouldn't that have been fun? <laughs> yeah, I'm really worried that 
we all have warm, good feelings about it, and this is going to be a boring discussion as we... Oh, I mean, there's plenty to criticize. You know, we can think of something. Lind- you know, Lindelof is not God. Yep. Can we vote on someone to be the, the <laughs> gadfly? Who's just going to pretend to hate it? <laughs> we should... Should have brought uh, Tamler Dave's uh, partner on his his co host on his show would have been good for uh, poo pooing for the it, hater. But. He's just a hater. <laughs> yes, and I have several haters on mine. So there you go. <laughs> we even debated like making this a two hour thing to talk about the graphic novel, which deserves its own discussion, and then talking about the show. But no, we're just gonna treat everything on a very surface level. In fact, I also rewatched. I wasn't planning. I was planning just ignoring the the movie because. You know, it is like a, a faithfully illustrated version, except when it gets to the end and screws things up and they just ignore it. It's just a strange, you know, unexplained, as far as the audience is concerned, I would think, if the audience just saw the movie and then goes to the show and like, wait, they're referring to the end of the graphic novel, which was not quite the end of the movie with a significantly different thing. We should say we're going to spoil everything here. Could you remind me what happens at the end of the movie? Because it's been years since I've seen it. It's that Ozymandias has observed Manhattan enough to steal his teleporting powers and to learn what his energy signature is and to be able to counterfeit it. And he destroys New York, Hong Kong, Beijing. Like there's about five cities for flirting with the idea of World War Three, and says this is like the message is clearly this is Dr. Manhattan has gone rogue and is exerting his justice upon you and he's always going to be watching you. So there is something actually more coherent (laughs) and, you know, it actually connects to the rest of the plot and like, does Manhattan care about us? And does, what is having a God live among us? Does he really, can he really be a partisan American? Like it really, in some ways it's more true to the ideas in the book than, I gathered a bunch of authors on an island and somehow had them channel their mental energy into coming up with a giant squid that I then teleported into New York along with a shockwave of terror, you know, of Cthulhu madness that then uh, so scarred everybody in the U.S. at least. I don't know why, you know. Moscow is destroyed in the movie similarly. So that seems like it would be more effective than merely putting the fear of interdimensional beings, which it seems like there is a possibility that that would then be denied, you know, in other countries like, oh, no, no, that's just that never really happened. That's impossible, obviously. And they could just, you know, keep going on with their sinful non-world unity ways. (laughs) The movie tries to be more thorough about that. You know, I think that movie gets a bad rap. I rewatched it recently as well. And the first time I watched it, having been a fan of the comic, I wasn't that happy with it because Snyder was really trying to be faithful to the comic, except for that. I don't blame him for not doing the whole squid thing because that would have been hard to pull off, I think, in movie. But everything else is like, you know, it's it's almost like he took the comics as storyboard. And I think that he ended up not pleasing anybody. The people who didn't read the comic you know, they didn't have a compelling reason to be moved by the story the way that people did read. The people who were hardcore comic book fans were disappointed as you were about the change. But I think it's not a bad movie. I don't know what you guys think. I feel like it suffers a little bit from having such a strong start. It's hard to follow up on the opening credits. Which, oh, uh, yeah. Best montage. Yeah. For those who don't remember, the times they are changing playing by Bob Dylan as we see flashes of the Minutemen, right? And how they rose and fell. It's such a moving little storytelling up front that it's hard to follow that in my mind. I feel like 
the way that the comic goes is really kind of audacious and crazy. And maybe someone in a studio somewhere said, well, we really can't make that into a movie. Whereas someone sitting around at HBO said, oh, sure, we can do that. Like, we can be as batshit crazy as we want. And maybe that's just a little difference that just didn't work in the movie. It's also really hard to make a novel into a two-hour story or however long, even the three-and-a-half-hour story, Mark, if you want to go with the version you watched last night. It's just not the same as a long-form oh, prestige no. television where you have nine hours to say something. One of the things that Snyder's really good at is imagery and he, making something last in our memories. He's good at making beautiful pictures. I think that's also part of my problem with it is that I feel like things are so cool looking all the time that it just gets lost in that rather than driving a story. So I do remember what I remember of that experience watching the film was I got really tired pacing wise. I don't think he does a great job. I'll never, by the way, listen to the song Hallelujah the same way after that, after that movie. <laughs> That's the other thing that was changed for the movie is that there are some sequences like the sex scene and they're breaking Rorschach out of prison scene, which in the graphic novel, I was just looking, you know, they just kind of look around and like, wow, like it's kind of condemning Rorschach's brutality that the Silk Spectre and Night Owl are walking around the prison just kind of looking at the chaos. Whereas in the movie, they make it, there are about five instances where there's like a full length music video, basically, of, you know, a long fight scene. And there was one that was, you know, the first time that they go out and are attacked by a gang, like they kind of go into a dark alley on purpose, wanting to relive the magic. So in the graphic novel, you know, there is the fight scene that's cut against something else. But you could imagine like that being faithfully portrayed as let's add some music to it and make it fun. But this was like an extra, you know, a second phase of that that was nowhere in the graphic novel that just we need to show these people kicking ass. I think something that the the TV show did better was we've had so much time now to have great television that HBO in particular has learned how to construct a really well-told story. Plus, yes, Brian, you have more time. So that's really helpful too. Zack Snyder was trying to adapt the comic book and Lindelof is not you know, he gets to tell a brand new story. And I, I saw that, that one of the things we might talk about is that perhaps the, the ethics of taking somebody's story. Alan Moore very much did not want this to happen, but Lindelof gets to tell a whole new story in this long form. And Lindelof is weird enough. You know, he's Lynchian almost that he can, I think, take squids and make them a compelling TV, whatever, the imagery that drives the plot in a way that a mainline DC movie, that was never going to get greenlit, you know? Erica, you just finished the graphic novel this morning. What are your... That's great. I wish I could read it for the first time. I'm dying to know what you thought, yeah. Yeah, what are your fresh impressions? Oh, it was such a funny experience because my husband has read it a few times and he was like, do you want to read this together? And so me being an actor, I'm like, yes, but I'm going to read it out loud. Also, he's a much faster reader and he's used to comic books and what to look at and much faster than I am. So I was like, let's just go through this and I'm going to read all of it. And I made like voices for each of the characters. You should have taped that. We did do one recording for some friends of ours of us both doing terrible, terrible accents. So it was fun for him to see me experience it. One of the things he commented on is the fact that every time we learned more about Rorschach, whether it was something he was saying or something 
that we were thinking about that happened in the TV show when they were referring to Rorschach, I would be like, oh, this guy's really an asshole. He's like an alt-right dude. And Drew's like, yeah, because we have some friends who are like big Rorschach fans. So it was kind of surprising to us that they didn't like seem to make those same connections at first. But to me, it seemed pretty clear. Maybe they just hadn't read the graphic novel for a while, but it seems pretty clear that like why they chose to make the, um, what's the name? Seventh Cavalry? Yes. Cavalry. The, the Seventh Cavalry refer back to Rorschach. I enjoyed his arc. I thought Rorschach had a great arc by the end, the sweet, sweet moment when he looks at Night Owl and says that he's been a good friend. That was one of my favorite moments. But then also at the end when everybody else is like, yep, we're going to keep quiet. And he's like, me too. Just kidding. <laughs> Never compromise. <laughs> Loved that. Thought it was a very strange moment that John would obliterate Rorschach though this character who really didn't do a lot throughout the whole novel. And then all of a sudden was like, yep, I'm going to kill this guy. But like, who was going to care about what Rorschach said anyway? He'd already lost any credibility that he may have had. I actually loved and identified with Lori character a lot and thought she had some beautiful moments at the end with Dryberg. And I did find myself understanding in a lot of ways what Ozymandias did and you know, seeing clearly the world that they created in the novel and how dirty it was earlier on. And then at the end, everybody's getting along. So it, it feels compelling, but then you have to remind yourself, yes, but it was also a huge lie. And if and when that comes out, it's going to be worse for everybody. It didn't bother me, Mark, that it was only in New York because it was such a huge moment that happened. I think that like kind of a trope that we get in sci-fi is once any alien invasion happens, the world has to come together. So I, I guess I just didn't see the need for them to attack more than one city. Well, and in the show, they actually, I think also, though, recognize my point that he has, he set the system to automatically shower tiny, quick-to-melt ice squids over random places, computer-generated randomness around the world, you know, at regular intervals. So that it really isn't just a, a potential attack on New York, I think that that was the implication that everybody else got a little taste of it as time went on. Yeah. You know, I wanted to pick up something, Erica, that you said, which was my experience. I started rereading the graphic novel after having seen the movie most recently and watching the HBO series. And it's not at all obvious from, if you go from movie to HBO series, why Rorschach would spawn these like essentially the, the KKK. Yes. It, it's clear from the book that this guy is all right. And Rorschach seems more like a hero in the movie than he does. And I think the whole point of The Watchmen is that none of these people are heroes. They're all pretty terrible. But Rorschach is a really an Ayn Randy kind of objectivist, you know. Mark, Mark, have you guys ever talked about Ayn Rand on PEL? We had an Ayn Rand episode, yes. Oh, yeah. Forced I'm ourselves. Sorry. I'm sorry that you had to do <laughs> <laughs> But that's how Alan Moore made the character, and he was basing it on a couple of earlier characters like The Question, which is a DC character. These guys are just stubborn assholes, and... I think Moore himself, I remember reading, thought thinks to himself, whenever anybody comes up to him and says, oh, I love Rorschach, he thinks, well, I don't like you. <laughs> I find it hilarious. One of the articles that I had found said that Ted Cruz at one point said in an interview how much he admired the Rorschach character. Oh, my God. <laughs> 
he's a cultural shibboleth, right? That's how we figure out if we yeah. like someone. <laughs> but you know, it's really easy in when you're consuming entertainment to not think of things in context, right? So in the story, you focus in on maybe parts of a heroic or possibly anti-heroic character that advanced the story. And yeah, some of Rorschach was really, he was abused and he has reason for being the way he is. If you didn't have a window into his past, you would like him a lot less, right? We understand why he is the way he is and maybe we are sympathetic towards him. So I wouldn't totally fault your friends for liking him. They may only remember the things about him that they like. Like I said, he has a great arc, especially at the at the end. He, we do see quite a change when he starts to be around humanity again, when he starts to be around friends and has kind of those idealistic ideas of when we all read Ayn Rand for the first time and thought it was amazing, right? Of like, yeah, this person can be part of our society and be self-sufficient and everything will be awesome. <laughs> and then you just don't see the other side of that. Yeah, several characters commit genocide in that story, and he's not actually one of them, so... Right. He's, he's more on a, he's more on a local. He thinks locally. <laughs> so, so David, as our, I don't know which of us has read more comics, but you had presented yourself as the comics expert. So I'm going to treat you that way. Do you know if this is the first, what would it be like if superheroes were real? Let's be very gritty about it. Is this the first graphic novel that really took on what is now a very, very familiar trope? There are a lot of people who know more about comics than me, but this is understood to be that. I think that this is taken to be the first real serious treatment. You know, this is the sign that comics grew up a bit, and that's why it was so influential. For all I know, somebody did it before, but they certainly aren't remembered as being this subversive. So Frank Miller's Batman is after this, right? Dark yeah, Knight Returns. 87, maybe? Is 86. So it's actually about the same time. Yeah. Anyway, something was brewing. Yeah. And the fact that DC let this happen, I guess the original story was, I haven't rechecked this, maybe somebody can correct me, but that they had bought out some other old comic franchise and had these little used characters. And so Alan Moore was invited to do something creative with them, but then he screwed them up so much. They said like, no, you can't use these characters, just rename them, make this as, you know, an original universe. But this was supposed to be like a roughly DC universe or, you know, something like that thing. You know, this is what some people have said with, you know, Alan Moore has really turned into such a curmudgeon. I don't know how much you guys were reading about this. His name isn't on the HBO series. He he really, I guess, had bad experiences with the early adaptations of his work. And he thinks it's immoral that anybody would, you know, he obviously doesn't own the rights to this anymore. DC owns it. So that's why these things can happen. But only Dave Gibbons, the artist's name, is on the HBO series. And I actually was torn a little bit because I respect him so much. I'm like, oh, man, am I partaking in a disrespect towards somebody I respect so much by just watching it? Which then I quickly disabuse myself <laughs> of that. <laughs> he didn't have his name on the movie either. And I had thought maybe that was a thing that he originally was, but then he withdrew it because of the choices they made. But actually, I don't know. So I just took it as a matter of course. Of course, his name is not going to be on his, like, is his name on the movie for V for Vendetta? Is it on anything based on his work? I'm not sure. I think V for Vendetta was one of the bad experiences. Okay. Um, and then the other one with uh, Johnny Depp about Jack the Ripper. Oh, uh, From Hell, yeah. From Hell, yeah, which was a terrible adaptation. The solution there is to not sell anything, right? I mean, 
not to be totally unsympathetic, but Alan got paid for this. And I don't know if he sold the rights or if it was an employee situation, but this is what happens and stuff goes off into the world when you're a gear in the corporate machine. It could have gone worse. I mean, I think we're really lucky that this was put in the hands or came out of the minds of people who were willing to be faithful to the original and creative and mindful and all these things. I mean, it really could have been a disaster. Now I'm talking about the TV series, and it wasn't. And it's not perfect, but I think it's great. And thank goodness. Thank goodness. So, you know, it's really, we wouldn't even be having this discussion if that first episode dropped and I didn't walk away from it thinking, oh, this is incredible. This is an abortion and I'm done. And I guess that could have happened. Maybe it wouldn't have happened on HBO, but it could have happened somewhere. I was worried. What did you guys think after that first episode? Oh, I was in first episode. I was all about, I didn't know anything about that history in Oklahoma. I think we talked maybe a little bit about this. Maybe it was on an after show with you guys, but I'm from Southern Missouri. So not far from Tulsa, like three hours and never remember hearing anything about that. And so I looked it up, of course, right afterwards and found out all of that was true with the massacre. And for me, that reeled me in into the world because at that point I hadn't read the graphic novel. I had seen the movie, but it was years ago. And I was like, ooh, you know, they're taking some real world stuff that's happening or that happened. They're teaching us a lesson. I want to learn more about that lesson and see where they're going to go with this. I agree. I thought that was really exciting. Slightly hard to watch, but still compelling storytelling. I didn't know that it was a sequel to the comic book. I just maybe assumed it was going to be a sequel to the movie or a follow-on. And when it became clear that it was the comic book they were building on, I got so excited. I had a a little nerdgasm and said, okay, here we go. So I had no concerns. Maybe after the second or third episode, I felt like I was getting more confused. Yeah. You know, there's like a car that dropped out of the sky. I mean, it was really interesting storytelling, but at the same time, I feel like it wasn't until a few episodes later when some of the threads were starting to become clearer, easier to follow, I should say. Then I really felt like it was in the hands of someone who knew what they were doing and not just someone who was doing just really bold storytelling, right? We all have good reason to fear Lindelof's inability (laughs) to end a story, right? I mean, come on. Did you like The Leftovers? Did you guys watch The Leftovers? I only watched the first season. It didn't hook me in the same, but I've heard people absolutely who stuck with it loved it. Watched the first two seasons. I did. I liked the whole thing, but I feel like wasn't there like a weird jump between the second and third season or, you know, there was just things that come up, you know, actors are not available anymore or, you know, just things that make it less than like a wonderfully self-contained story arc. And the finale was just kind of weird. I appreciated it. But anyway, it, it was not like a masterpiece as far as I was concerned. And it was so bleak in its just beginnings, like the kind of thing that I could never get anybody in my family to watch with me. You know, a show based on just people crying over their missing relatives. Like, I don't know. That's exactly how I did. Yeah, I actually loved it. I stuck through all three and I thought it was really a masterwork by Lindelof. That's why I was so excited that he was doing The Watchmen. I loved it, but when I was watching it, I can't say that I was liking it. I wasn't enjoying it. It seemed like a bunch of scenes strung together to make me feel really, really deep, bad things. And he's great at that. As a visual storyteller, he's great at that. And so I find it hard to recommend to other people because if you're even mildly depressed, like, don't start, don't start watching that. But I think he really, in this series, 
all that confusing part for like the first four or five episodes even, he starts bringing it together in a way that he hasn't really done before, right? Like I feel like he had somebody telling him, all right, bring all these threads together. We were being totally mysterious talking about Damon Lindelof, who is the (laughs) creator and showrunner of this, as well as, as we've talked about the leftovers and Lost. Does anyone know, was he running Lost all the way till the end? Is he responsible for that misadventure? Yeah, he definitely is responsible for that. Okay. And, you know, part of a problem of having a show that goes that long is you have all this time and expectations. And when you know you just have nine episodes and hopefully no more than nine episodes, you really can tell this thing without any concern about what people think about it in some ways, because you've already begun with the end in mind. Uh, Lost was just such a, what a mess at the end. I happened to be in Madison visiting Mark towards the end of Lost, and it was where it had really gone off the rails. And it was that episode where we're seeing the island where Alice and Janney is the mother, and they're the two boys, the fair-haired son and the dark-haired son. And Mark's wife got up and said, they're just making this stuff up. And she stormed out of the room. And I thought that was so funny. It's like, yeah, I get what you're saying. (laughs) One of the things that I realized that I kind of love about this in the way that Lindelof, like he's always like kind of mysterious, right? We always have to kind of piece together what is he actually talking about? But it actually kind of worked for Watchmen because in reading it, there's always more than one story going on at a time. Like even within the chapter, you rarely get one chapter that's just dedicated to one thing. It's usually like a look into the past or you've got character stories overlapping. When you get to chapter 11, it's like the people at the newsstand and Vite and also Laurie and John and, and then the graphic novel, you know, the comic that the guy at the newsstand is reading. So it was reminding me, I recently heard an interview with Phoebe Waller-Bridge where she was talking about the way that she constructs a scene. And she said in any scene, there should be three different things going on. And I thought about that, like in the times when I write, I try to think of like, oh, I want a really clear story from this one perspective. And to think about extra things going on, sometimes it can be a big old mess, right? Sometimes we try to tell too many stories and it emotionally detaches us. But in the way it's woven in in Watchmen, you still, you definitely get this feeling of time passing quickly and time's a waste and we got to get something done. We got to get some answers. I feel like Lindelof did a pretty good job of that, but he also could have done better. And here's my big criticism was the lack of pacing between episodes. How much of storyline do we want to see versus backstory? And that was also my problem with the earlier chapters of Watchmen. Sometimes that supplemental stuff at the end, I was like, uh, really, do I need to read the ornithological papers of Dryberg? Alan Moore just packs text in. Like, it's very much unlike reading other graphic novels where, like, even these, I got a hold of these volumes of before Watchmen that mm-hmm. people have written, you know, things to fill in the world, which I noticed some things in it actually contradict what's on the show. So one of them should, is not canon or, you know, insofar as you care about that kind of thing. But it's so kind of more ordinary storytelling. Whereas Alan Moore likes to pack a whole philosophy treatise or whatever when he can into every nook and cranny, or at least many of them. No unpublished thoughts for Alan Moore. <laughs> <laughs> Have you read any of his other stuff? Yeah. He started getting really weird. I read From Hell, which is a great graphic novel about Jack the Ripper that is as thoroughly researched. You know, it has like footnotes, it has sources. It's amazing. V for Vendetta, for sure. He had a run on Swamp Thing, 
which I would never have read a Swamp Thing comic on my own, but he has a famously amazing run on Swamp Thing. And Watchmen, there's a graphic novel called The Promethean that he did that just started losing me. That's what I was thinking of, that he just would pack pages full of these like prayer-like he came out with a novel recently, which I have on my dresser and have not gotten to because I just know it's going to be diarrhea of the mouth. <laughs> it's just going to. I failed on Promethean also. Yeah. Right? No, I know. I tried. I tried. And I was like, you know what? At some point, just because it's Alan Moore is not an excuse <laughs> to go through this. So he mixes this all with these Tom Strong. He really has a love of these old, old comics. And so he has a whole, like Tom Strong, and there are several others sort of in that universe that are kind of recreating the innocence of that type of, you know, so simpler illustrations. Like it's a whole different style than what we're seeing in Watchmen. And then Prometheus is going the other direction of more gothic, more ornate language filling yeah, the page. And like mysticism. Yep. Which he is into in real life. That's actually what it, what I couldn't stomach. I was like, knowing that he kind of believes this shit is like, oh, this isn't fiction for him anymore. I don't know. Like, I refer to folks to my, I interviewed uh, David J from Love and Rockets, who is like, Alan Moore is one of his best friends. And they, like, magic with a K is something that they, <laughs> like, Alan Moore got him into, where you do these rituals. And it's like, a lot of it is about fostering your own creativity. You know, it's kind of more like yoga or something rather than actual literal belief in the occult. But uh, yeah, it's still weird. (laughs) Oh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen was uh, another one Uh that I thought were very good. I think we can all agree that was a great movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the car chase through Venice. (laughs) Let's think about that one. Just to circle this back to Watchmen. So one of the things that is great about the comic is, as you were saying, Erica, how much there's going on in each scene. And there's a lot of intercutting between things of like one panel. So I just watched the ultimate cut of the movie last night, which is three and a half hours because it puts in the black freighter comic book within a, it's just interstitial. And I was watching it with my son and he couldn't really figure out like, how exactly is the theme? Cause the theme of the black freighter is like, you know, you're so afraid of something, but it's really you that's causing the problem all along. But that's not actually what happens in Watchmen. It's not like Rorschach is on the hunt and he discovers, you know, other than it's the superhero community that is the pro, it's much more direct and it's much more directly interleaved, like panel to panel. There's stuff going on. And they'll just have like, rather than showing what's going on in the Black Freighter comic, it'll just be a little dialogue bubble of a guy, the guy's reading something from the Black Freighter comic while actually in the real world or vice versa. And this really tight intercutting between things, which was also in the movie, I think that's what made it exhausting is that it reproduced a lot of that. Like that's actually something I missed that I think made the TV show, at least on first watch, I'd kind of like to watch the whole thing again now that I know how it ends, but it a little more boring. I kind of wish there was more visually packed in each scene and yes of course like any tv show where there's multiple plots going on there would be one scene of ozymandias doing something and one scene of you know some bouncing around but not like as much of the quick cutting stuff i don't know was that annoying to you in that it made it too much like a music video in the movie and you're glad that it was gone or is this something you missed in the show it sounds like you're just one of the haters that's bringing it down on Rotten Tomatoes, Mark. <laughs> I think you're right. I think that probably would have helped. I do like a story that takes its time as long as it's, you know, well told. But 
yeah, I think that probably would have helped. I think the stuff that was happening in the present day was definitely a bit more compelling. There were definitely episodes that I still liked, like the, I still love calling him the mirror guy. Um, <laughs> his origin story was interesting and the Hooded Justice episode was great. Oh, yeah. But there were definitely times when I was like, okay, we're spending so much time on this backstory and yeah, what if we could have intercut those things within the odd-numbered episodes, which tended to be the ones that were moving the story forward. And it's the Dr. Manhattan backstory episode, which because of his asynchronous perception of time actually does have that crazy editing that I'm saying that like it would have been nice to get. That was brilliantly done. Oh, yeah. That captured the feel of the graphic novel in a way that... You can't just, like, Zack Snyder just tried to just take the source material and just plant it into it. But it's a different media. You have to give us feels in a different way. And I thought that this was masterfully done. I wanted to love that episode. I felt like that was one of the few times the show was treating me a little stupid. At a few points, I was getting too much scaffolding and reminders of what was going on, where if you're paying attention, we didn't need quite so many callbacks. But that aside, I I think that was really nicely done. I was distracted by their not showing Dr. Manhattan's face. The two actors who would have been in the TV show, a young Adrian Veidt and a young Dr. Manhattan, or just Dr. Manhattan, period. I don't know if they didn't have the likeness rights or they just elected not to use the digital recreation of... Billy Crudup in that scene, for example, it was almost like Austin Powers with his junk being hidden behind stuff. It was just to the point of distraction. I don't know. I, I didn't didn't need that. You should have just left his mask on at that point rather than just not showing it. I agree with that. That was frustrating to me as well. It was also to me, it was clear it was the same actor who was yeah, playing him the later. Voice, I mean, yeah. And I'm, yeah. The voice, I was just like, oh, we know it's the same guy. Couldn't you have like either make up a reason that it's the same guy or hire another actor so that we don't think that you just got cheap and decided to just not show the face and think that we're going to (laughs) be, you know, we're going to buy into this. I would have liked a few more callbacks to the movie. Like if you just got Billy Crudup to do that voiceover for, for five minutes there. It was a nice voiceover. Had some pictures of young Adrian Veidt, you know, the other actor doing that. Maybe have somebody mention to Hooded Justice, you know, what you should do an English accent. Because, <laughs> like, the, the one time he talks in the movie, it's like, get off him. <laughs> like it sounds nothing. It, right. I think he's supposed to be German. The hint that he's German in the comic. In the comic, they're like, we found a dead guy who is German who, who could have been him. And... That would have been fine if that was just misdirection, which it is from the point of view now retconned from the show. Wasn't that so cool, though, that we found out like that he was hooded justice and that he was putting on white makeup? It, like, oh, that was such it a makes sense. It's, it makes so much sense that the news and the hood. That, yes. You know, what a great way to wrap that all together. Reveals that you figure out just when you're supposed to. Yeah. Like not way too early and not. Like, oh, I never saw that coming and I shouldn't have. Like, that was so deftly done. I was really, really pleased. And now I feel like a complete boob for suggesting that Dr. Manhattan even should look like Billy Crudup because that's, yeah. that's the movie. And we're, why, why do we even need to, I feel like they, even though it's not a sequel to the movie, visually they went with so many of the movie choices that it seems like there should be some sort of continuity, though there's really no reason at all to have that. We could have just found an actor to play. Can I ask you guys, this This is the the worst thing I have to say about the 
the nine episode, hopefully only nine episodes, is that in the book, The Watchmen, and I guess in the movie, all the more so in the book, there is no clear villain. The story isn't about the fight between good and evil. I suppose you could say, and Mark is resident philosopher, you could say, you know, perhaps you view Ozymandias as the villain because he's willing to break a few eggs to make an omelet and, and he does the utilitarian thing. But by the end of the book, I understand if the world was going to end, then Ozymandias thought that that's the only thing that could be done and we're to believe that he really saved the world. Then it's uncomfortable, but shit, somebody had to do it. But in the TV show, the 7th Cavalry is just the bad guy. And it's just much more clear. And I, I thought that was taking something away from the spirit of the book. It's less complicated. These are just the racist bad guys. Right. It's like they try by having the the video reveal to mirror. Mirror guy. Fuck it. Let's go with the mirror looking, guy. Looking glass. Looking glass. Looking, yeah. glass. looking glass by revealing the plot to him and like, this is actually why this group is running around trying to fight against the deep state because there really is a deep state conspiracy. But that's such, they should have built that up more to make it and not had the slimy senator guy who's yeah. just so obviously bad guy. No, I agree with you. That's a really great takeaway. And that would have made things a bit more real world complicated as much as we like to try to, and we can villainize certain people for being true villains. Not everybody is that, you know, most people are very complicated and have some terrible points of view for reasons that we don't quite understand. And this just, yeah, it was very clearly that. And then also the Dr. Manhattan definitely seemed like the hero character, like the God character in an angelic way. But it wasn't like that in the graphic novel. He was also complicated and and not a great hero. At the end, one of my favorite parts of the whole show was when the Lou Gossett Jr., old man Reeves, says he, he was a good guy. With what he could do, he could have done more. Right? Yes, that that's, was a great line. I don't know whether that's just a sweet, just a little dropping that there to make us think about it, or if they should have fleshed that out a little bit more. But maybe there was something to Manhattan, you know, sort of a Jesus story, becoming human for 10 years to like regain his the humanity that he had lost when he was becoming so detached in the book. Right. I mean, that's every, we know from The Sixth Sense, right? Every superhero has a weakness, and that's Dr. Manhattan's as he doesn't have humanity. So it's not that he could have done more, but he saw no need to do more. He also loves young women a little too much. (laughs) (laughs) He's ageless. I don't know. I will say regarding the idea of a, of a villain, I I really felt like the seventh cavalry was, they were just a, where they were revealed to be a patsy or a, they were just pawns. They were, they're buffoons. In some ways, this racism was this existential threat in current day, the way that nuclear, Destruction was the existential threat in the 80s, with Lady True really being our our real villain somehow by the end. But I don't know. It, it didn't rankle me, Erica, that idea of not having a villain. I loved it, but it was very uneven storytelling. You know, back with Lost, having all these origin stories, it was very slow. I mean, those first few seasons, if you watch them again, I've tried watching some of them. It's tough to watch because it's like these little flashback episodes where nothing happens by the end and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't watch this. And a superhero story is more conducive to origin stories 
and I enjoyed them. But every time I'm like, dude, you have nine episodes. Do you have time for this? Like, do we have time for this? Are we really, is this what we should be spending our precious film time on? I just want to throw out the brilliance of Gene Smart. I think it was the third episode was the Silk Spectre episode, right? Every freaking scene she's in, she's just killer in it. And it just makes you wonder, like, why don't we see her in everything? And I hope it's because she only wants to do certain projects that she really believes in. Because her Lori was just fantastic. It was nice to see her being such a strong character, which I feel like she was in the... She could have been more so in the graphic novel, but I think ultimately she she was trying to find that agency, and it seems like that character finally did and was respected for her intellect and power. Was she driven by, you know, she's so anti-mask at this point when we pick up uh, her character, but I totally agree about Jean Smart. She was great in Legion, too. I don't know if any of you guys watched Legion. Was her character here driven? I, I wasn't quite sure about the motivation of her character, and I, and I admit to not this aspect I didn't think about nearly as much as all the race stuff that made me think quite a bit. But why was she so anti-mask? Like It seemed kind of odd that she would go from being a masked vigilante to an FBI agent who just... Well, she was never masked, though. Oh, yeah, she wasn't masked. That's right. That's right. So, I mean, she did talk about it at the end of the graphic novel, how maybe I should get something that covers my body with something with, like, leather and a mask. But, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was partially that. Maybe it's partially, like, a look back to this is totally everything that we fought against is, like, restarting the world and not needing these masked heroes. Maybe the masked heroes brought on partially this conflict that we have. So maybe that was it. I don't know. What do you guys think? This is just making me look up on the internet Silk Spectre uh, mask to see if there's some phase and looking at all the Halloween costumes and uh, <laughs> <laughs> sexy Silk Spectre. <laughs> Wait, I thought that was built in. I, I don't know that that's really well explained, that question. They commit to it, which is nice. And they certainly, just the amount that masks are explored in the show is really interesting in a way that I, I don't even think it is completely in the novel. Someone pointed out it was so odd that the police should be wearing these yellow masks that make them targets. Like it's a super <laughs> strange thing that they should have, but it really is then neat to see with um, Sister Knight. Am I getting her name? Yeah. Sister Midnight? Regina King. Oh, she did an amazing job here. Just so great to see her actually painting black on her face the way that her grandfather painted white on. I mean, it was just the whole thing is just when you have that short amount of time, you can play a lot with imagery and symbolism, knowing that you're not going to get into any trouble down the road, right? You can do parallels and not have to worry about paying it off later because I know we've mentioned a few times we're all, I don't know if we're all, I am certainly hopeful that they're done that this was a thing and it happened and there was an article that we read in preparation on Digital Spy, why we don't want to watch Watchmen Season 2. And yeah, that could be said for a lot of things that I don't want a second season of that somehow we get stuck with anyway. And there's money to be made, maybe, but that's not a good enough reason to do something. I don't want a Season 2 now, but I think if whether it's Lindelof or somebody else has a similarly well-thought-out idea an actual motivation for there being one. I mean, there are stories still in this universe 
Right. We we're just talking about what are the Silk Spectre's motivations? Well, the whole thing of she and Night Owl are sort of the main characters, arguably, in the graphic novel in the, in the film. And he's just not even mentioned, right? He's in custody, I guess, but there's no reason to bring him up, you know, so it seems like there could be a story there. And even in the world of the graphic novel, there's this whole silhouette is the other like, first generation along with Silk Spectre's mom who is lesbian. So you could have a whole parallel to the racism thing. Like even the homosexual relationship between Hooded Justice and Captain Metropolis here is just thrown in, I think because it was in the graphic novel and they had to acknowledge it, but like it served not much of a purpose in the theme or even developing that character other than creating more of a distance between him and his wife, which the violence by itself going out at night and having that rage that makes you kick people in the face, like that would be enough. (laughs) You didn't need this other thing. It just kind of was a little icing to explore that very under-fueled, in this presentation, relationship between him and Captain Metropolis and how disappointing that then they wouldn't help him actually fight the KKK. That homosexual relationship, as you say, is in the book. Once you brought race into it, I took it as attempting to be symbolic about the black man getting effed by the white man in a way that the power dynamic, although on the face of it, equal right, between Metropolis and Hooded Justice, it wasn't really. I don't know if that's what they were going for, but with the tone of the show uh, being so much about race dynamics in this country, I couldn't help but see some symbolism there. Which brings me to this, I thought that Lindelof took a real risk making this about race, or at least partially about race. And he brought on a whole crew of people of color, and he had a lot of, of women and people of color writers to do things that he himself said he wouldn't have felt comfortable doing on his own. But it could have blown up in his face. That was the biggest criticism I heard from stupid internet people was, oh, this is just too woke or whatever. And I think he pulled it off. But I don't know. What do you guys think about the race stuff? So would it have addressed, you know, we were complaining about the lack of fleshed out villains if they'd actually used that extra episode that they actually said no to. You know, it was supposed to be for 10 episodes. And he said, we don't need that much. We've written it so that it feels like it would just be filler. But, you know, if you really wanted to humanize, you know, whether it's going further with the looking glass or with the background of the evil senator or something to make you feel like the KKK people had some human motivations, like that would be very politically risky to explore that, would that have deadened some of the criticisms, made it feel less, yes, we're telling the story of race and that's a story that needs to be told, but at the same time, everybody is a human being and they all think that they're the hero of their own story and acknowledge that complexity that was in the original graphic novel. I don't know, would that have helped or would that have just lessened the impact of the civil rights story that was trying to be told here? I think it would have helped because... I think when we place things as black and white, we end up leaving out a huge amount of people who are somewhere in between. And it's because of like what the graphic novel did with where they didn't feel like there was a true hero or a true villain. I think that we need to take a definite hard look at how we marginalize people. And I'm not by any means saying like, oh, I kind of get what the white supremacists are doing. No, I'm not get, saying that at all. But it's not necessarily like when you know where somebody stands, 
it's kind of obvious where the problem is. It's the people who don't really take a side and the people who contribute to things silently or who don't really commit. That's where I find it to be scary. That's really well said. Yeah, maybe you can expound on that if you want. I'm still trying to make sense of it. No, no, I, it is strange to have someone who is not of color in charge of this show. And I couldn't help but think of that TV show that HBO had in development that they canceled, that they, they stopped developing called Confederate. Do you remember hearing about this? That D&D, David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, it was an alternate history where the Civil War ended in stalemate. And people were calling it, like, this is going to be slavery fan fiction. And not equating these, but one does wonder if a black showrunner or creator had come to this, like, people would not have had the same negative reaction to it. Like, you can be very mistrustful of a couple of white guys coming up with a show like that. And one can be really mistrustful of what Damon Lindelof was going to do. And I guess there wasn't reason to, but... It was hard to know going in. Yeah, I just think ultimately, yeah, seeing a true villain and a true hero feels very childish. It's nice. It's a nice little story, but that's not what Watchmen is. It's a grown-up comic, right? And had we had a bit better of a foe in the 7th Cavalry, I would have been more convinced. Actually, uh, Judd Crawford, the Don Johnson character, is I think the most complex of these because we find out that he was secretly part of this organization and you know he had a KKK robe in his closet all along. But I don't think that we're supposed to believe that he didn't actually have a relationship of mutual respect and even love for Angela. And that complexity, holding certain views that might be abhorrent but hiding them while nonetheless living a life in which you, you know, I don't know what he was thinking, being such good friends, like their families would get together. You know, it might have been that he was thinking, oh, you're not like all the others. Or it might have been that he just had some political views that didn't necessarily bleed into his normal life. And, and that's what many real racists are actually like, right? You wouldn't know that they're racist. It's not like they're calling people the N-word to their face on the street. I mean, more so now than probably... <laughs> It's been a long time, but that subtlety would have been nice because, or else they're just a bunch of buffoons. And if you're going to portray the racists as the true villains that they are, or that they could be portrayed as, making them dumb, right? Like they were so dumb, they trying to make a machine to give, it ends in liquefying the senator. Or just making them one dimensional. One dimensional, yeah, yeah. Oh, give them that good Oklahoma accent, you know what I mean? Like right there, obviously they're the bad guys. Yeah, you're right. I don't know how you, how would we have gotten to the place where we got with Don Johnson's character still there and with that complexity. Cause I think you're right. I think, you know, his wife says at the end, like, Oh, he was supposed to get in with her because he knew Dr. Manhattan or whatever. And he did that. But to see that true relationship grow, like even in the very beginning, they're watching Oklahoma together with an all black cast. And it's just such a sweet relationship on the surface. And that would have been cool to be able to maybe not have him die in that first episode and explore that relationship more to see, yeah, maybe he just thought she was one of the good ones. Ugh. I think that's one of the reasons that this would hold up for a, a second viewing, right? To see, because it's episode one where they have this relationship and it's not until, I guess, episode seven where we learn he's seventh cavalry. So what's really going on in those scenes and on a second watching are there some cracks in this? Is it really 
the facade the whole time. I mean, I don't remember the first episode well enough to know if maybe there were some hints that this wasn't, I mean, he was a little cynical about that performance, but that could have just been, you know, playfulness. Or maybe he really, this whole relationship with Angela was fake. And there may be some clues to that from rewatching. Isn't she smart enough to know that? I don't know. She's pretty smart. I mean, she never reacts with anger or hatred when he is talked about. She goes, she attends his funeral. And I think that maybe like me as a viewer, I was holding out hope that this wasn't actually him. The the true self of Judd was that he did care for Angela and maybe even that having been, you know, embedded in as a secret agent into becoming friends with a black family might have changed his views. Yes, that would have been more interesting. Exactly. And like then maybe his wife ends up being still the one who's pulling the strings, but he's somewhere in between. Has to betray the Seventh Calvary. Cavalry. So, I keep saying Calvary, like, <laughs> like where Jesus died. Um, <laughs> Cavalry. <laughs> I did the opposite. You remember that, you know, that movie with um, Brendan Gleeson? It's actually called Calvary, and I kept calling it Cavalry. It's one of those words. <laughs> <laughs> While we're rewriting or, uh, you know, adding our creative juices to the pot, I, I want to make one more season two pitch. Like if this had been made, the sequel had been made in around 2001, 2002, One of the articles, in fact, that we looked at was saying, you know, it was great that Vietnam was touched on in some way, but that there's still, you know, a lingering thing that we don't really understand that war or how, what its implications were and how it plays out in the region even now. And we see, you know, with North Korea. So there's something that's ripe for combining that Vietnam stuff and treating that, you know, maybe actually getting someone from that area to come up with this idea in detail and then also adding terrorism to the mix. In other words, instead of white supremacists, instead of the Cold War, you know, if you set it in 2001, 2002, even if in this alternate universe, 9-11 doesn't happen, right? We already had the 1985, what do they call it? The incident, the giant squid incident. Yeah. It seems like that a 9-11 would be a little redundant, right? <laughs> this already happened. But still, like, what's the equivalent in this alternate history? Maybe that's happening in 2024 when I, you know, the soonest that somebody should actually make the next season to give this a chance to cool. But that might be something we're still left when we're, if we're thinking about the distribution of power and should it just be governments that have the power or should there be vigilantes that are running around doing things on their own? Should there be militias? Like that's terrorism. That's this fundamental unresolved thing in our, our the political life of the world. Hmm. That would be interesting if we showed a world where the masks were gone and then it became out of balance because of that. So the governments, yeah, took over too much power and then we had to like have a resurgence so that we always have to restore the balance in the world between the masked and the unmasked. Are we talking about the Mandalorian now? Restoring the balance? Yeah. (laughs) I just watched Star Wars last night. It's it's there. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, Yeah, don't say anything. (laughs) I won't, I won't. (laughs) Well, I'll make a pitch, Mark, for waiting 20 years for the sequel. We'll see what the zeitgeist is. It's going to be something we can't imagine. Racism will be over, so it'll have... (laughs) Oh yeah, totally (laughs) post-racism world. Yep. I'm on the fence as to whether or not there should be a season two. My first thought is don't ruin it. It was really good. Let it be what it is. But then, not that this is the same type of show at all, but Big Little Lies. We didn't need a season two. Some people didn't like season two. I thought it was quite good. It was different, you know? We'd like... Maybe we just cast Meryl Streep and we're all good. 
they just have conversations for the whole second season. <laughs> like nothing, nothing really big happens. It just, they're kind of just reflecting on what happened in season one. <laughs> yeah, there's a trial, you know. <laughs> I want to see the origin story of the guy in the panda suit. <laughs> we didn't even talk about Lady True and her motivations, and I don't think we have time to do it, but there is something interesting. She's weird. The performance was great, but cloning her mom? You know, yeah. it's like, what the? Yeah, both her and the the daughter slash mom are, are really well cast. These, yeah. like, kind of uncanny personalities. The squid going through her hand was pretty awesome, but then I was really frustrated by the fact that, what was the guy in the red mask's name? Red Scare. Red Scare. Yeah, why didn't he get hit in the head or in the hand and have, like, a hole in him? He seemed totally unscathed. That was really inconsistent. It can go through. Yeah, that was a total cheat. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, Well, thanks so much for joining us, Dave. Any other last words for anybody? I told you we could have done two hours. Well, yeah, my thought on that was we could, but for people who (laughs) haven't watched Watchmen at all, that's two whole episodes they're not going to listen to instead of just this one. Of course, they're gone by now. <laughs> you, you guys have amazing discipline. <laughs> <laughs> We've been doing a lot of these lately, so really an hour is quite good yes, for us. Yes, this is running very long for us. So let's say goodbye to the people and we'll have some supporter-only talk for those that are gluttons for punishment. Thanks for coming on, Dave. Thanks for joining us, David. This, this was awesome. Thank you for having me, guys. This was great. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode, and you get to hear the episodes in advance of everyone else at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.